Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got a BAFTA award-winning actor, comedian, broadcaster, and now history author. On the podcast today, David Mitchell, national treasure here in the UK for his acting in the hit TV show Peep Show, and he's gone on to many wonderful projects after that. His latest project, though, is a history book, a history of England's kings and queens. From the emergence of England, which, as you'll hear, we have a little discussion about, he locates it sometime during Athelstan's reign. Others might say Edgar. Who knows? The debate goes on. Right the way up to 1600 with the passing of the Tudors. He is interested in kings and queens when they wielded power. But his book is informative, but it's also funny. It's a cross-genre book, folks. He points out that the Vikings were great, unless you met them. A bit like Peter Sellers. <laughs> and I expect he is right. Very pleased that this former history student at Cambridge University has come home to history after decades wasting his time in comedy. The history world's lucky to have him back. So here's David Mitchell. Enjoy. Hi folks, welcome to this live recording of Dan Snow's History Hit Podcast. It's live because we've got one of our biggest guests ever, David Mitchell, star of stage and screen. David, how are you? Oh, very well, thank you. Well, it's good to have you. When now, you what? say live, this isn't live. No, it's not live. No, no. Live recording. Did I say live? Yeah, well, it's live recording. Well, I mean, it's, that's yes, actually it's a... a contradiction in terms. <laughs> well, it's a... It's we're a, live now, we're, uh, but as, we may be a, dead by the time people life. watch this. It's now's live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There'll be no editor. We can't afford editors. No. Um, to what do we owe this great treat? Why are you a, a colossus <laughs> delving into our little world of history? What's going on? I've written a history book. I know. Yeah, that's why I'm here. No, no, but I'm why? Excited. Why have you? Why, why have, you done have that? I written it? Because you could. We assume you could be bestriding the stage and being funny on, you know, much bigger platforms than, than our little <laughs> what geeky platform could be bigger than the entire history of human endeavour. Well, that's what I secretly say. Um, but um, well, no, I, I, st- I wrote this. I started writing this book during the during the lockdown when a lot of people are trying to write things, and I hadn't been. And then I started typing about the Vikings uh, because uh, I, it's, it occurred to me that COVID is a bit like the Vikings in that it was a terrible thing that suddenly happened to an unsuspecting community. In the case of my typing, Anglo-Saxon England. There were being Anglo-Saxon England in their way, and it wasn't of great life, but, you know, they were used to it. And then suddenly the Vikings turned up and it was grim. And they didn't know why. They didn't know whether they'd stop turning up, whether they'd go away, and just thought that's that's the one of the bleakest things about being a human being. Sometimes a bit of history just happens to you and there's nothing you can do and you're a victim of it and you're not part of it and you don't have agency. And the Anglo-Saxons, as we did, tried to give themselves some agency by saying it was their fault 
and you know have all the talk about uh, yes with um, covid we haven't been preparing enough for pandemics or that somebody may be at a bat or whatever you know, whatever it is let's please as humanity let's take ownership of it and make it something we've done to ourselves rather than the more frightening thing which is just something that's happening to us that has nothing to do with us and makes us not a villain but just a victim and that's what happened with the Vikings turning and the Anglo-Saxons said, oh, it's God's cross with us. We haven't been praying enough. We haven't been holy enough. That wasn't why. It was just because that, you know, the socioeconomic conditions in Scandinavia shifted slightly, as did uh, maritime, maritime technology. Yeah, maritime, yeah. You can't, can't control yeah, the waters around the island, David, as yeah. we know. You know, that's yeah. the ongoing uh, problem in British history. So you... Now, it used to be Vikings, now it's sewage. That's good point. <laughs> Uh, then they try, I've got images now of the monks on Lindisfarne attempting to sort of enforce social distancing. <laughs> Sorry, can yeah. we just... Well, it's the ultimate social distancing, just going to Lindisfarne, isn't it? I mean, uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They've been practicing it for, for generations. But yeah, the poor guys, they were sitting there all, all quiet, praying away, and then the Vikings turned up. What, in their case, so that's history. Why kings and queens? Why do we return? It's so interesting. We, we return time and again to this. Does it give us a track and narrative that we can then write, the, hang on the breast of British history onto? I think so. I think for me, certainly in the medieval period that, that my book's about, that's the basic political narrative, the who's in charge narrative. And that doesn't tell the full story, but it tells one of the main stories and it leads you through it. And that, that was the story I had found most compelling before and the one I was interested to tell. And it's, you know, in many ways, there probably there are more important things to look at in terms of the lives of the majority of the people, but in terms of characters and story, that's what I was drawn to. And you can't also, one of the reasons my book ends in 1603 and one of the reasons is that after that, if you just talk about the kings and queens, that becomes less and less relevant and that stops being even the main political story after a hundred years or so. I think that's that's so true because if we're in this poll, we're going to try and get a bit of a pecking order going. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's so hard to compare medieval monarchs uh, yeah. with, with early modern and modern ones because you end up having to like go, well, was Elizabeth II better than Athelstan? And you're like, it is just, you're comparing two totally different <laughs> entities, aren't you? I th certainly feel that if they swapped roles, they'd both be very unhappy. <laughs> I think if Elizabeth II was trying to consolidate Anglo-Saxon control on a partly Viking-occupied island, I don't think that would have been her great strength. And similarly, I think he might have found it a bit frustrating, the endless duty and positivity, and he might just... At some some point, can I slash someone to bits with a sword? Go, no, Your Majesty. Just now take the posy of flowers and smile. <laughs> I think that is totally true. So that makes life a bit easier. And when did you, you started writing about the Vikings? Yeah. You must have found writing this book. Whenever I write and think about kings and queens, this our bizarre habit of starting the king list with William the Conqueror. It just is so strange, isn't it? And you've gone yeah. all the way back to the early medieval as yeah. well, haven't you? Well, I thought if we're going to define a book, one of the ways you could define it is say it's about the kings and queens of England. And so you immediately say, okay, so England has to exist. And England didn't exist. I mean, obviously the physical space did, but no one called it England before the Anglo-Saxons arrived because that term derives from then. So we can forget about the Romans. Um, or not forget about them, but, you know, don't have to do the Romans. And similarly, after Elizabeth I, you got the same monarchy in charge of England and Scotland. And so it starts to be more Britain. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to ex pretend that England was Britain. I'm explicitly not doing the history of Scotland, which is separate. It impacts. I mention it. But if I said, OK, I'll do it of the kings and queens of Britain, 
you're opening up so many other That's, arenas and so... You've got to put the Bruce in there. Either, either the book is much longer or it's much less detailed. So you... Okay, well, this is the, the, the big problem we all face, isn't it? Is who was the first king of England? Yes. It's a well, nightmare. Well, it might be Athelstan. Yeah. It might be Edward the Elder. It's not Alfred the Great. Sadly not. Um, but it's around then. As yeah. I say in the book, it's a sort of soft launch, the kingdom <laughs> of England. Um, before the Vikings came, the Anglo-Saxons definitely had lots of different kingdoms and a vague sense that they're from the same cultural root, but no real sense that the notion of England is really forged in opposition to the, the Vikings. They sort of, we want to get back to England was the sort of Alfred the Great's pitch, but there was no England to really get back to before. So, When you started this project, you mentioned you started from the kind of point of view of the Vikings, <clears throat> yeah. but did you think, oh, I'm going to write a history of English monarchy, it's going to be very heavily kind of plantagenet and were you kind of drawn towards those early monarchs? I find them increasingly interesting, cause I, only because we overlooked them until quite recently. They just weren't part of our kind of national story. In, well, it's, in it's all, it's, I, I like it because it's so confusing. Definitely. You know, that you understand why there's been so much television of the Tudors. You sort of know where you are. There's, sort right. of, there's a handful of easy characters to get a, get a grip on. You can on. assume a bit of knowledge in the audience. Yeah. Everyone knows where they are. But yeah. the Wars of the Roses, it's all over the place. Even since writing the book, I've forgotten most of it. Okay, but great. the Plantagenets going into cadet branches of York and Lancaster, that's the big muddle of what basically happened in medieval England that I used writing this book to briefly get a sort of grip on. But the, yeah, the confusingness of it is, it, and, is attractive. And, and, the, and that's what all kingship is. Our notion of kings is partly Henry VIII, but apart from the, his big iconic figure, we're thinking of kings that were in that period, that that's the proper period of kings. That's when the, the, um, all of the, the aesthetic of kingship derives from that time. Yeah, that's interesting. When individual, usually men, ruled uh, with pretty arbitrary, pretty um, total power over, over all the rest of us. Yes. That's, and yeah. they had crowns. They had crowns. They had shields. Yeah. They had coats of arms. All of the pictures of um, King Arthur have him like that, even though if he had existed, which he didn't, he was a millennium earlier yeah. and would have had very, very different clobber. Probably a bit of an old toga, you know, yeah, and clinging half, on to the half, remnant a, of... half a gladius and a, and a sandal, <laughs> saying, "I am the emperor." Is writing a history book? Is that one of the dad sort of things to tick off? You know, like it's dad life. <laughs> hashtag dad life. Because <laughs> I, I mean, you could have done so many different things. So many of my friends like come to history in the middle, the middle years of their life. But you, you've got previous. It strikes me that one of your more famous alter egos, someone who someone who you've had to struggle in the past to put distance between you and this fictional person. Um, he wanted to write a book called Business Secrets of Pharaohs. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, look, I can't say that I've entirely escaped the shadow of Mark Corrigan in writing a history book. This is a book that he might be interested in. Well, I think so. But the thing is about him and me, we were young fogies, and now I'm gradually growing into the appropriate age for fogies. That's as another young fogey. It's yeah. quite nice because all your friends suddenly join you. don't move, you, you remain as interested in Stalingrad as you were at 19. Yeah. But strangely, your sort of weird mates who are interested in like house music and other things start to, and then yeah. sometimes surpass you. Like I've got mates now who are like writing detailed descriptions, their grandfather at the Battle of Passchendaele. I'm like, you have gone, 
You've gone. You've yeah. overshot the runway. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What's your music collection looking like yeah, now? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So let's talk. When you did this book, I'm so interested. I love people's different perspectives on all the monarchs. Can we just start with like anything you are just sick of, and you think are massively overrated? Well, I'm not keen on William the Conqueror. Okay. Um, I'm not keen on William the Conqueror, and I'm not keen on Edward the Confessor. Well, now, I wouldn't say Edward the Confessor is massively overrated, but no, no we, likes him. we call him. Well, I'm very glad to hear oh, it because it seems like lots of people like him. They allow him to call himself Edward the Confessor and talk about his holiness and his praying. Absolutely useless man. He was a useless man. Totally. He sowed the seeds of discord. Absolutely. Do we not like William the Conqueror because you have a kind of nostalgic love for the Anglo-Saxon, sort of all a bit 19th century, a bit nostalgic for that? Or do you just think he was a right bastard who um, was just a, a violent psychopath? Well, they were all right bastards, basically, in terms of the, the standard of conduct is woefully below <laughs> what we'd expect, you know, uh, even of Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, um, you wouldn't imagine a prime minister behaving like that, with that, that level of incompetence that level of uh, promiscuity would be absolutely <laughs> shocking this day and age, wouldn't it? No, yes, we, do, we, just, we just have uh, a much higher... But the truth is, we do. Even, even the worst, even Liz Truss <laughs> is probably a safer pair of hands than most Goodness of these me. people. Okay. Um, but uh, certainly with less interested in waging war. And crucially, you could get rid of her without waiting for her to die. And that is a very, very good system. Yeah, exactly. Because there were so many times in the Middle Ages where people were just waiting for the, this useless bastard to die. And then and occasion, very occasionally they go, well, it could be ages, even though it's the Middle Ages and people just drop dead for no reason all the time. We just can't <laughs> wait for him to die. We're going to have to do something else. Edward II, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's just too long. Just, he might not die for 30 years. Yeah, we can't uh, His father made old his bones. His dad made old yeah. bones and, and his son did all. Yeah, Richard the second, similarly. Yeah. It's going to be too long before he dies. We're just going to have to put him in a castle and starve him. So William the Conqueror, yeah. you don't like him because you're, well, you're affectionate. Well, you've got to pick a side. Right? Okay, I, okay. I mean, that may be that some academic historians would say you don't. I think possibly. But, but I think they've, <laughs> lost, they've lost the joy. Uh, but I think... If, Battle of Hastings, one of the first things you get taught about, or I got taught about, you've got to pick a side. Do you want to pick the invading Normans or do you want to pick the Harold sitting on Senlac Hill? And I picked Harold. Most of the people in my class picked Harold. But turns out, sadly, uh, spoiler alert for people who haven't yet bought the book, Harold loses. Crikey. And that's a bit of a shame. And it's one of the good reasons not to start your history of the kings and queens of England with William the Conqueror, because it's a bit of a pisser. Harold's <laughs> an attractive character, I think. Yeah, he's very, obviously he had no birthright to be king. We feel more relaxed about that now, that we're not so keen on the whole notion of people being in charge because of a birthright. But he was professional. He was organised. He did everything right. And he would have won the Battle of Hastings if his army had listened to him. And his brother, Tostig, was obviously such a horrible person. Yeah. Harold got rid of him. Yeah, I, I... We all know families can be difficult. And I've, you've, I feel for Harold trying to deal with Tostig. And he, initially, he has, he's got a nice earldom in the north. Things are going nicely for him. But he pushes his luck. And I think Harold deals with it with great, great dignity. You listen to Dan Snow's history. Talking to David Mitchell about kings and queens of England. He's just written a book called Unruly. More coming up.
Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. So you're a Harold fan. Yeah. Uh, you are not a William Thorne. Anyone else overrated? I think the Tudors in general overrated. are overrated because they're not, their imagery is great. The portraits of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I in particular, that's great iconography. And you sort of think, let's, let, we can do that. They've got the outfit at Angels, get the right actor, stick them in that. <laughs> that's a great trailer. But they're a bit of an afterthought of medieval kingship, really. And I think in their time, England is essentially accepting its own mediocrity. Henry VIII, it's got to be said, he's been overcovered, but he is a lot of fun. I understand why he's had so much coverage. And in a way, looked at in terms of, if you, if you take the job of a king not to be to rule his own age, but to give lots of interesting stories to Great posterity, he has been an amazing content provider. And, and I do accept that he's fun, but I've had a bit of enough of him. And also, if you think about him for more than five minutes, he was so awful, unbearable. Yeah. You know, almost you'd rather a complete tyrant. But the fact that he had a, a sort of an intelligent, thoughtful, intellectual side to him almost makes his tantrums and his... Uh, crushing insecurity. Yeah, all the more uh, contemptible. So you're a blood and thunder guy. I mean, you like a king. What was it Henry the Fourth of Navarre? And the France said, I like, you know, I rule with my ass in my saddle and my sword in my hand. That, that's your... Archetype. Well, that, well, that was the way to do it. That, that's what Henry II did, and he's one of the most effective medieval monarchs, albeit one who sort of met with a sad, lonely end. Yeah. Henry I was great, and he's a professional. I agree. He, he, he got yeah. rid of his brothers. Yeah. He usurped the throne yeah. brutally, which is, you well, know. Well, no, there was a terribly unfortunate hunting accident in the New Forest where poor Prince Harry saw his older brother William get killed very accidentally and not on purpose at all. That's... Well, he definitely bounced back quickly from his grief <laughs> yeah. uh, and got in ahead of his poor, the elder brother. I mean, oh, what a one life. Of life's, one of life's losers, bless yeah, him, wasn't it? One uh, of history's losers. Robert yeah. Curtos, who, yeah. who died, he was made very old bones, but spent most of his life in Cardiff Castle. Yeah. And, you know, Cardiff wasn't the vibrant centre then that it is now. <laughs> so, I, you know, I feel sorry for him. But no, Henry I, he just feels like he's professional. He got it. What you have to do, you have to be horrible. They were all horrible. You have to be willing to kill at a moment's notice. But if you do it with a rationale, you do it even-handedly, you don't have favourites, and you have some notion of the stable government you want to be heading towards, then it can work out. And he created a very peaceful kingdom albeit through violence. And in those days, that's sort of as good as it, it gets. It and also, another thing he doesn't do that many of the other ones that vie for best king, they all do do, is he didn't try and conquer too many other places. 
That puts a lot of pressure on the kingdom when the hundreds of years where every king of England is trying also to be king of France, and it's not really viable. But he said, no, I've got Normandy and England, yeah, and I'm going to stick. Happy days. Yeah. And well, Ireland, the Irish also, the, the, and, and the appalling result of that conquest. Wales wasn't easy. Mm. Uh, and as you say, France. But I mean, Henry V, Britain's Alexander, what a legend, but he died of dysentery in a, in a, after yeah. a siege. Because as you say, I guess it's, those conquests put pressure on their institution and money and stuff. Also on the individuals. I mean, yeah. it's, it's exhausting. And Richard I got shot with an, a crossbow bolt during a siege as well. So. well yes, and he was, <laughs> they say he was pausing to applaud the bravery of the castle's defenders. <laughs> <laughs> and just got well done. He was just defending, defending the castle with a frying pan. And he thought, how brave that is. But he may be on the other side, but I applaud my fellow. Ah! A kid. Yeah. Kid and then, you know, the and then thanks to the complete absence of knowledge of how to medically treat a wound, he just died agonizingly over a fortnight. That's a terrible description, isn't it? Yeah. It yeah. took him a long time to go. Okay. So, uh, Tudor's overrated, William the Conqueror's overrated, anybody else that you, you, you came to really think was... So can, yeah. Elizabeth Tudor usually tops the list, doesn't she, Elizabeth I? She, I suppose she is overrated. She wasn't amazing. I, I struggle I'm, I'm, with her, because sometimes I think, oh, what a me, and all that kind of clever politics. And then partly you think, well, Ireland was a disaster. Uh, she didn't solve any of the big problems. She delayed yeah. all the big problems. She didn't seem to solve any of them. So I, I struggle with her. So, well, the thing about her that people don't seem to say, but strikes me, and it's a success of her brand building that people don't say it, is she was just very, very cautious. Yeah. And she inherited the throne at a time where she was the daughter of Anne Boleyn. The country is hugely divided, religiously speaking. She was in an extremely insecure position and had a tricky life up to then. So I understand the caution. It's an yeah. intelligent no, person's not. response. But she sort of knew she was on a sticky wicket and behaved like it, really. And she was, yeah, they, repelling the armada went well. But everything she actively pushed out into the world was essentially underfunded and nervously done. Well, and yeah, she underfunded the poor old sailors who fought in the armada as well, and to their great detriment. So, well, she sort of launched her own armada, didn't she? Oh, yeah, the following years year. later, that went at least as bad. <laughs> we forgot you know. that one. Yeah. So Henry the First, interesting. I think I think I agree with that. There, I ask, have we got top three. Well, I'd have to. I think Henry the Second was pretty amazing. I think so too. And he held yeah. together. I mean, he, most of France as well as England, and it's all down to energy. I think he wasn't great at dealing with his own family because the uh, relentlessness with which his sons tried to overthrow him, to me, it suggests that he must have been a difficult chap, you know, domestically speaking, because um, that doesn't always happen. It didn't happen to Edward III, who True, had, a good he, relationship with he had a very good relationship with his kids, despite by the end of his reign, he was totally decrepit, but nobody was trying to overthrow him, whereas Henry II, they were trying to overthrow him the whole time when he was still quite, you know, hale and hearty. So we so, like Henry, Henry first and second. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering about the big two in terms of trying to conquer France are Henry V and Edward III. Yeah. What do you think about the two? Well, I think it's interesting. They're both supreme uh, military leaders. Yeah. Probably the best two. Richard, okay. Certainly, Richard the Lionheart's very good. Richard Lionheart's yeah. very good. Def, I mean, extraordinary. In, uh, almost, well, yeah, very good. But as you say, ultimately, those plots just bank well and in case Henry V destroyed his dynasty because Henry VI his son was just sort of completely broken by that effort and the effort to hold in France 
And then for the third year, it's a hubristic thing to do, undertaking, isn't it? Well, the thing is, they both tried with all their might to take over France, and they both nearly succeeded. But the whole notion of trying to take over France is so ridiculous that can you count them great kings? For that they've devoted themselves to something yeah. that was just it was a horrible experience for the, both of the armies and the poor French. You sort of think about all these the famous battles of the Hundred Years' War. Poitiers, Crecy, and Agincourt, these great victories where outnumbered English armies destroy huger French armies because the French armies have got a ridiculous strategy. It makes the English the underdogs and it makes us feel all good and plucky. But the reality is all of this is happening in France. The reason the English are so outnumbered is that they have left home in order to destroy the lives, livelihoods, crops and villages of people in a neighboring country who've done them no harm. So that suddenly slightly turns around the whole plucky underdog thing to say, now what they are is nasty thieving bandits. And you know, sometimes a burglar will be in a house and find himself outnumbered <laughs> by the people that live there. But that doesn't make him plucky. <laughs> and in both cases, Edward III's successor and Henry V's successor both partly as results depose. Yes. So, yeah, they're damaging for their dynasties. Um, okay, so we don't, so yes, so we're not huge fans of trying to conquer France. But Even though, obviously, Henry II, who I've just named, he was obviously in, well, controlled a lot of France, yeah, but, but he wasn't trying to be king of France. Yeah, yeah, he married the King of France's wife, but, which was a shot's fired. But yeah. yeah. What about Edward I? Feels like we haven't. Well, I, I'm quite judgmental about him in the book, because obviously he was militarily quite successful and basically asserted control over Wales, yeah. which was not necessarily what all Welsh people would say was nice, but it was his aim. So he succeeded in his aim. But he also had the same aim with Scotland, and he didn't succeed in that remotely. And in fact, the enmity between England and Scotland had existed for a long time afterwards, and you can see certainly remnants of in the way people from Scotland, people from England relate to each other now, was hugely inflamed by his very unsuccessful policy. And I think he was a bit of a a bit of a sort of thug, really, a, a thoughtless... Yeah, you're, 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 you know, you're very difficult. He was a big religious extremist. He was very, very devout. And one of the things he did as a result was expel all the Jews from England, which you know was very uh, fashionable amongst extreme Christians at the time. But you know, it's not something we look fondly on now. I, I think you're setting quite a difficult set of parameters because you like a thug. But you don't. You, well, but you don't want them to thugs. be. Yeah, exactly. You but know. you don't want them to be. You like them to be sort of thuggish within a kind of national community rather than invading the next door one. Yes. Well, I, okay. I think what I'm expect. Firstly, you say I like a thug. I yeah. think the Let's thuggish nature up. of government then was regrettable. Yeah. But it's all thuggish. Yeah. So you can choose the sort of bonkers thugs that you don't know what they're going to do next, the more even-handed thugs, yeah. <laughs> the thugs that fail in their aims, the more successful thugs. And so on the basis that they're all thugs, yes. I'm picking the even-handed successful thugs right. over the unsuccessful capricious thugs. That's very clear. So Henry the First, uh, who else do we like? Who's, who's the thuggish? Oh, Henry the Second. So Henry the yes. First, Henry the Second. Yeah. I have a soft spot for Henry III, who I don't think was thuggish enough. But he, very... he certainly, his worst enemy wouldn't call him a thug. You're no. right. No. Henry III and indeed Richard II and Ethelred the Unready, mm -hmm. uh, the unusual thing, a medieval king that doesn't really want to go to war. Henry VI. Henry VI. And Henry VI, he's another one. I mean, he had more problems than yes. that. 
But that, you know, nowadays, we don't want our leaders starting wars. In those days, if you didn't want to ride into battle, it's a big part of the job description that you're not willing to cover. And, um, and they, they didn't go. It's odd, very odd with Richard II, actually, because he was avoided war throughout his largely unsuccessful reign. But the first thing he did, where he sort of faced down the peasants' revolt, was incredibly brave. Yeah. And you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be a reluctant general from that moment. But um, We've talked a lot about war. Is there anything else you've identified? What makes good king or queen? I mean, the organized violence side of it aside, is there anything else? I think all of the things that we expect from government today, you've just got to ignore that. They're not trying for any of it. They're not trying for peace. On the contrary, they're waging war. In terms of education and healthcare, they're not interested. Forget about it. So all you can expect is stability. The good kings provide stability, the bad kings don't. And that stability comes from being predictable in your actions and firm and not having favorites. And I think, you know, Henry I was particularly good at that. He's even handed, he didn't have a clique. The worst kings, the ones that caused the most trouble, Richard II, Edward II, Henry VI, have favorites. And it's having favorites, having particular people they lent upon that made the rest of the nobility feel sidelined and frightened. That's what causes civil war. And that's what essentially makes living in medieval England even less unpleasant than it usually was. Isn't it interesting, when I'm reading a book or thinking about this, how you're talking about kingship, like they don't have human bodies themselves. So I now, as I get older, I realize how different I am at various different stages in my life. Mm. And these people, as you mentioned, like Edward III, they're, they're trying to be Edward III. <laughs> but, yeah. you, you know, well, you can be Edward III as a young man, but then all, you've also got to be Edward III as a guy crippled with musculoskeletal pain. And, you know, and yeah. I, it's fascinating, isn't it, how they age and then that changes the nature of their rule. Yes, and I, perhaps we, we expect too much of them. Yeah. And one of the biggest mistakes I think Henry I made was at the end of his reign when he caused a rift between himself and Geoffrey of Anjou and Matilda, his daughter, who was, you know, his designated heir. And because he basically refused to give Geoffrey some castles that had been promised to him. And that is an old man clinging on to all of his possessions and telling himself he's frightened that if he gives these castles to Geoffrey, that that's going to start Geoffrey trying to take over Normandy, which I think there's no evidence for at all. The fear he's feeling really is of death. Uh, but he projects that onto his son-in-law. And as a result of that rift, that gave Stephen, the next king, the excuse to claim that Henry I didn't really want Matilda to inherit the throne. And that causes 20 years of civil war. And that's the product of a, the changing mentality of an aging man. And obviously Edward III, he completely outlived his faculties. And that was a shame as well. He'd been this great general and quite a good leader and clearly an effective father because his family liked him and had a strong marriage with his queen, but then she died and he starts to lose his grip and is very much in the thrall of his lover. And the country starts going bankrupt because he's still trying to fight a war in France. And it's a very, very sad end to a very glorious reign. I think wives are important and they're often overlooked, aren't they? I think Henry I had a very good wife and Henry II had a remarkable wife. 
those are some of the details that, yeah. that we can ignore perhaps as traditionally men have written about them through the kind of military lens. Yeah. Or, yeah. And we don't, we don't hear so much about yeah. the Queen's, um, yeah. the Queen's consort. But um, I think they probably played a really important role. Um, last question, I guess. Did, did you, when you're sitting there in modern Britain, writing away, do you think these men and women, did they matter? Like I, in the older I get, the more I'm, what did it, did it, or, or is it all just science and engineering and, and microbes and, and do you think that the people in charge make a difference? Well, I, yes, I wish I knew. They definitely. I'm expecting an actual comprehensive answer right now. They definitely make a difference in the short term. But here's the big question in terms of the period I've done. You've got for a long time in the Anglo-Saxon period, all the relationships from England are with Scandinavian kingdoms because of the Vikings. And you have King Canute, who basically rules England and much of Scandinavia. And, and it sort of feels like that's England's orbit. And then suddenly, a few of the right people die. And that all changes. And William the Conqueror comes over and England's orbit is all France. And then you have Henry II. And, you know, it's, it's almost like the whole direction the country's looking in swivels round. Was that inevitable? Would that have happened if it, we know... If Canute's kids hadn't been so bloody useless. Well, yes, if he'd had more effective heirs yeah. or if William the Conqueror had lost... Uh, Hastings, which could easily have happened. Harold the Godwinson, very much more Scandinavian looking. Would that trend have continued? Or was the impact on England of Normandy and by extension France inevitable? That cultural power was a force beyond the control of any uh, man or men. Without William the Conqueror, would the Anglo-Saxon royal house still have basically been dealing with France a hundred years later? Yeah. And you see how I've avoided answering your question You're by just reposing it. What a pro. I could, yeah, I could be a politician, couldn't you I? Should be. Yeah. You're wasted. Uh, what is, let's, okay, so best monarch to go for a beer with? Monarch to go for a beer with, I think, young Henry VIII. Oh, okay. I think young Henry VIII, he'd be good company, but I wouldn't trust him. Quite into modern, thoughtful ways of doing things. And then he just hurt his leg and got cross for 20 years. Uh, best monarch to be your brother-in-law, to marry your sister? To marry your sister? To have in the family is a sort of, you know, in-law, nice in-law relationship. I think, that's, I mean, that is an incredibly specific question. Yes. Now, best, Edward the Fourth. Mm. Yeah. A bit of a shagger. He was a bit of a shagger. <laughs> I tell you what, he did for his uh, wife's family. Oh, okay. oh, that's a very good way of looking at it. Absolutely <laughs> showered them with wealth. But also, I, I think Edward IV is slightly underrated as well, because so he was quite capable. If David Mitchell's sister is listening to this podcast, you are, you are I there. I don't have a sister. Oh, well, there you go. That's why. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. She is there simply to bring yeah. honours and jewels <laughs> upon the rest of the family. I love but that. I, th I think they would, they would have said that family, that he, he made an okay brother-in-law. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And then his little brother came along and had them all killed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> best month's gone a stagnate team building exercise on a windswept island off the coast. Right. Now, what do you want from someone like that? You're on a team building. I mean, if you're me, you want the monarch who will guide you to the latest pub that has the nearest <laughs> pub that has nice rooms so you can avoid the Henry whole the team Navigator. building yeah. exercise. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe, you see, Edward IV would be quite good for that sort of thing. He, he liked his creature comforts. I mean, they killed him in the end. Um, I'm going to try and think of someone. Richard the Lionheart. Okay. There you go. Yeah. He was good at logistics. I think if you could say 
If well, you're well, telling me it was the holy thing to do, you yeah. need to say, we need to go on a crusade <laughs> to find the pub. Yeah. He did, well, he did, did well on Cyprus, which is an island, so yeah, I guess yeah. so. Um, Dave Mitchell, thank you very much for coming on this show. What is the book called? It's called Unruly. It, it does all of the kings of England from the Anglo-Saxons to Elizabeth I. All of your medieval kingship needs will yeah. be met. And it has colour photography. What? Yeah, although no photographs of the actual kings and queens, sadly. But that's because photography wasn't invented in time. It's not my fault. <laughs> Yeah, the picture, it's not the picture, it's sort of... Uh, no, exactly. Yeah. So instead you have the dreadful drawings that were done of them by various medieval monks. Very good. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. If you're a fan of David Mitchell and you're a paying subscriber to this podcast, we've got a treat for you. In our bonus episode for subscribers this week, you'll be getting a chunk of David's audiobook, Unruly. It's one of my favorite bits in the book. It's about the Battle of Hastings. David, surprisingly, turns out to be a major fanboy for Harold Godwinson, King Harold II of England, rightful King of England in his view. Not like that usurper William of Normandy from across the channel. Anyway, he waxes very lyrical about the Battle of Hastings and Harold. It's a great bit of the book. So if you want to sign up for all that, you can subscribe at Dan Snow's History on the Apple app, or you go to historyhit.com slash subscribe.